The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. I'll be honest today, this is a very weird passage of Scripture about a strange group of individuals. How many have ever read the Bible and go, what in the world is going on? And uh, sometimes we do that and we see some strange stories. There's a couple things that we need to understand. When we read stories in the Bible, uh, the Bible says that that which is written is written for our learning, for us to have understanding. God is not always saying when we read a story about a person that this is the way you should live your life. How many have picked up on that? He's not always saying this is how things are supposed to be as much as sometimes he's saying this is how things are. This is how things were. And this is how things can get if people live in this way. And that's important for us to acknowledge because sometimes people go to the Bible and they say, oh, well, God is saying that this is right, this kind of behavior is right, this kind of abuse is right, this kind of activity is right. That's not what God is saying at all. As a matter of fact, he's shining a light on the, really, the way man can be when he lives in his mind apart from God. And I don't know about you, uh, but I know what I can be when I live in my life not thinking about God, not acknowledging God. Is that a possibility for us, even church-going people, that we can make decisions without acknowledging God, that we can do things without thinking about God? I know Sunday very much so as we gather together uh, as a church people, we kind of put our, uh, our clothes on for church, we kind of gather for church, we come to the time for church, and we, so we're kind of thinking about God. But sometimes, even when we gather at church, aren't we sometimes even just thinking more of ourselves? Um, you know, we, we often think of whether I'm comfortable whether I'm uncomfortable, whether I like this or don't like that, whether things go the way that I would prefer them to go or not. And isn't it amazing in a gathering where we're focusing on God that we could be so self-focused? And that can be who we are. And so let me invite you just for a few moments this morning as we look to the Word of God to turn your eyes upward. Uh, this is a foolish thing for us to do is to, to look horizontally, right? Where we look at ourselves and we look at each other and we, we compare ourselves among ourselves and we, we think that, you know, we're good on the basis of our comparison to another person. Uh, we think that we're bad on our, uh, on our comparison to another person. That even happens sometimes. We look at other people and say, well, you know, one day I'll be as good as this person in church or uh, maybe I'll have that character or not. And that can be a very discouraging atmosphere to be in. But when we look to God, what we get is hope because what we understand is that us being good is not what God requires but that we look to God who was good for us and Jesus who died for us so that we could have life and then he gives us his goodness. He in turn says, I'm going to give you my goodness because you can't be good enough. How many have figured that out? I can't be good enough. And when we look at this narrative today in Judges, uh, this, uh, these last four chapters of the book of Judges are the most probably unstudied and unpreached chapters. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving in a couple weeks to go to Australia. I was thinking about having our assistant pastors have to handle these last chapters before and not let not, me not have to handle them or preach uh, through them. And I actually just thought, boy, this is not a, a very encouraging passage of Scripture to be in. Uh, but we're going to attempt at least two messages on these last four chapters, and today's message is going to cover chapter 17 and 18. And as we read chapter 17, you can go in chapter 18... There's really just three things that you need, or three characters that you need to focus on as you look at these, two, uh, these chapters. 
One of them is a guy named Micah. It's not my son. I know everybody looked at him when we were writing about it. It's not who we named him for either. We named him for the prophet Micah, not this guy, Micah. This guy, Micah, is a pretty rough dude. And uh, he is uh, somebody who is not to be emulated in life. What happens as we look at the, uh, towards the end of Judges, really the end of Samson is kind of the end of the book of Judges and the story And he's the last judge. We looked at that last week. His death appears to be the last really chronological event in the book. And we leave with a dead judge and an incomplete rescue. Because what happened at the end of Samson's life? Nothing. I mean, the Philistines, a lot of them died. But how many know that the Philistines as an enemy continue on through the life of David? And through through the life of Saul and then through the life of David. And so... He doesn't give them rescue, ultimately, or peace from their enemies, as he was intended to do. And um, these last four chapters kind of give us a view of humanity without God. What, at the ground level, is detailed of what Israel was like during the time of the judges. And so it kind of gives us, after we've looked at the judges, a view of life in Israel and individuals in Israel. And so as we look at chapter 17 and 18, there's Micah, there's Micah's mother, and then there's, uh, some, uh, there's a Levite who's a priest, and he's named in chapter 18. We don't really get a name for who this Levite is, and later we find out that his name is Jonathan in chapter 18, that he's a descendant from Moses, which is really strange in his behavior. And then we, we learn about the tribe of Dan. And the tribe of Dan is, is, a, is the part of the tribe that's kind of left out in the description, even as we look at Revelation, because they never, ever took the inheritance that God told them to take. They never went into the land. They never, they're not living here in this chapter, in chapter 18, in their inheritance. If you remember, the Israelites went into Canaan. God gave each of the 12 tribes a certain portion of the land that they were supposed to focus on and take, and they were supposed to take up residence in. Dan is not living in that area. They never go into the area. They never even attempt to take the land that God told them to take, they just find another parcel of land. They say, this is easier for us to take, and we'll live here. And this is even outside, we find, in chapter 18, they're living even outside the land of promise. So they're not living within the promises of God. And there's a whole other message that's in there. Uh, But as we look at this, we can see some very specific things. And today we're going to talk about self-made gods. Self-made gods. We look at Micah in chapter 17. He's a man, the Bible says in verse 1 of Mount Ephraim, and he says to his mother, apparently 1,100 shekels of silver has gone missing, and he stole them from his mother. So we start off really with an interesting story here. How many like Micah already? He's stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. His mom finds out that this money is missing, and she declares, in the name of the Lord, a curse on the one that has taken the money. Micah hears about this curse, and in a very kind of um, uh, a karmic way, or a very kind of, uh, he, he's in a superstitious way, thinking about God. He says, I don't want this curse to be upon me, so I'm going to go and I'm going to give the money back to my mom. And it's almost like the mother says, oh, I'm so happy that you brought the money back. How many of that would be you if you're child stole money from you, you'd just say, oh, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. That's, thank you for bringing it back. You're such a good boy. You know, that's kind of her response, which we can see the danger of what happens in a country where people don't learn or acknowledge the word of God. They kind of enable their own 
their own sinfulness, their own wickedness. And uh, she takes the money, and of course, like a good mother, what she decides to do with it is she sends it to a man who's going to make a graven image with the money that he stole from her. This makes perfect sense, right? This is what we would all do in this situation. And she's going to give this graven image to Micah to put in his house. And maybe, perhaps, this graven image is going to make Micah a good boy. Uh, this idol that they've made for themselves is going to change his behavior in some way, his character in some way, and maybe make him a more principled individual. So she's buying into religion, idolatry. She has this image made, and she says she's going to give all of the money to make the image, but what we even see in the own mother is that she doesn't even give all of the money. Verse 4, she takes 200 shekels of the 1,100, so she really makes a really cheap image. She says, I'm going to make an 1,100 shekel silver image. But she decides instead she's just going to make it, you know, a little bit cheaper image. She's going to actually keep some of the money and only put 200 into it. You know, some of us when the offering plate went by today, right? You know, we're just like, we'll just get a little bit, right? So you know, put, it, put it in there, just, you know, I don't want to get too crazy, too extreme. I'm just joking, relax, all right? Some of you really got a guilty face. How did he know what I put in, all right? So, you know, all of a sudden we, uh, we, we look at this and we see kind of a really messed up uh, situation. And what we see about these gods is that, that they make to themselves these self-made gods. There's some things that we can see uh, that we can apply in their life. But in the end of this story, uh, Micah ends up finding a Levite who's passing through town. Here's a man who's supposed to be a priest. He hires him to be his priest. So now he has a house and he has a God. He has a God inside of his house. Now he's a priest. He hires a priest to come live in his house. So now he's made his house a place of worship. And now he has his own priest. And uh, what happens later is the Danites come through and they see the God that's there and they see the priest that's there and they offer him a better deal. They say, don't you want to be the priest over an entire tribe instead of just the priest over one guy's house? Why don't you come be our priest? We'll pay you more money. So he says, oh, sure, this is a good deal for me. I have really no allegiance to this guy who's bought me. I'm going to go with the greater deal. And so we can honestly see, even in Israel, the state of those that even are religious leaders. I mean, can you imagine this? This whole kind of narrative going on here. And at the end, I mean, Micah's like, you've taken everything from me. You took my God away. You took my priest away. What do I have? I don't have anything. And it's a really, again, strange story, but I think something that we can learn uh, from. And let me give you a few points today about self-made gods. Number one, self-made gods have no substance. Self-made gods have no substance. Uh, We have here, really, a person in Micah who is a very weak character with no principles, And people who make gods unto themselves are much the same. They have very weak character. They have, they're hollow. They have no principles. There's not much substance within them. I want you to think about this for a second. In the Garden of Eden, God said this, let us make man in our image. But after the fall, when man sinned, man said this, let us make God in our image. That's what happened. God said, let us make man in our image, but after sin, man said, let us make God in our image. And you say, well, that's just kind of something that happens in, you know, 
faraway places and third world countries where they don't have organized religion. You know, they kind of make images to themselves and they worship idols. Let me tell you, this is just as much present in America today as it is in anywhere else in the world. We have made God in our own image and not thought about the fact that really we, were ma- we are made in God's image. We are made to be like God. We are not made to make God like us. Did you get that? We are made to be like God. We are not made to make God like us. But why do we make God like us? Because we like to control Him. We like to corrupt Him. We like to lower the principles of standards and living in our life down to what we feel is right rather than what God says is right. We live in a day, and long has it been, where people have said this in our own country, that there are no absolute truths. And they say that absolutely. There's no absolute truths. Well, I mean, you just gave an absolute truth that there are no absolute truths. And when you remove the foundation of reality and truth, then everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. Look at verse number 6. In those days, this is the whole series, right? Empty thrones. There's nobody on the throne. There's no king in Israel, but every man did that which is what? Right in his own eyes. Now, God's eyes are wide open. They're seeing everything. The eyes of the Lord are in every place to behold the evil and the good. But here, everybody's living in a way that's right in their own eyes. Now, have you ever heard this or said this yourself? I know maybe you wouldn't say this, but maybe a good friend of yours perhaps has said this. Well, I don't see what's wrong with that. I don't really feel that that's wrong. I know the Bible says, or I know that, you know, it's kind of like an old thing, the Bible. You know, for us to take the Bible and make it a a standard of absolute truth for us today is a very archaic, old way, traditional way of living life. And, you know, today there's just a lot of the Bible that's irrelevant to our life. And so we're going to make our own laws and our own rules. How bold and brazen does man have to be to take something that's of divine revelation from God and call God antiquated. Call God, who, by the way, is eternal. Let me just remind you today. God is ageless. He's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not dated. He's not an old man. He's not the big man upstairs, you know, kind of uh, hunched over and, you know, kind of decrepit and, and wishing everybody would just do what he said. He's not hoping for people to kind of, you know, one day turn to him. He is a sovereign, righteous, holy God, an all-powerful God, in control of everything. Whether we believe in him or don't believe in him, his existence is not altered or changed. He is and always has been. Let me just say this to you. God was before America. God will be after America. God was before time. God will be when time is not. God is eternal. Listen, God was before us. He will be after us. There is no time with God. There is no old with God. There is no really new with God. Everything with God is done and right and true. He is who he is. And, you know, isn't it interesting that man likes to point at what God does and say, well, that's just old. You know, that's not something that we would like to apply to us today. By the way, many people today in philosophy and psychology would have us to believe in humanism, have us to believe that humanism is a very new kind of way of thinking. Humanism is a very old way of thinking. Humanism is from the beginning of man when man said, 
you know, we don't want to listen to God. We want to do things our way. This is something that we can see through the narrative of Scripture, humanism, people saying, listen, what I want should be the, the world of standard of truth should revolve around my desires and not around somebody who I don't know or even may even believe exists. It's a very interesting thing that we see in our world today where people are saying, not only we don't need God, but there is no God. But all of us are worshiping something. We were made to worship. You know, either you're worshiping God, Jesus said, or you're worshiping the devil. None of us would ever say, I I wouldn't think, would be here. Maybe some would be bold to say, uh, worshiping the devil. Some of us would say, well, we don't even believe in him. We don't believe in any of the literal things of the Bible. The Bible is just a narrative of nice stories and tales, something uh, on the line of Aesop's fables that you can learn some truths from and you can glean some truths from and you know, maybe it can guide your life. And perhaps the Bible is a crutch to those that are weak and don't have education or don't have money or don't have finances to you know, kind of move themselves along in life. And so they need to hope in something. And so you know, religion is, is, is really kind of uh, a band-aid for the life or a crutch for the life to try to help us to move forward. But what we make to ourselves and our gods are gods of no substance. As a result, we have weak character, we have uh, no principles, we're hollow internally. Uh, Really, as we look at this uh, narrative between Micah and his mom, we see really a a parent that doesn't know how to parent. We see a child that has no respect or honor for his own mother that he would steal from her. This is the life of those that claim to know God. These are the, we're not talking about the heathen pagans. We're talking about people that say, we're Israel, we're God's people. And this is how they're living their life. And so self-made gods have no substance. Number two, self-made gods have an image problem. They have an image problem. We said already that man said, we'll make God in our image. Micah's mother is very orthodox in involving the Lord's name in verse number 2 as a source of blessing. Look what she says. And, and he said unto his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest and spakest of also in mine ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. Again, a weird response here. But with the return money, she gives it to the Lord for her son to make a carved image and a cast idol. She gives 200 shekels to the silversmith to make an image and an idol. And this is startling because it shows really a blatant disregard for the second commandment. We have a woman that evokes the name of God but ignores the word of God. Do you see that parallel in our, our, our culture today? Evoking the name of God but ignoring the word of God. You know, I use God's name when I need God's name. When I want to acknowledge blessing or when I need 911 and I need God, or how about this, at a wedding, at a funeral. We live in a culture, everybody comes very, you know, at the wedding, you know, we want God. At the funeral, we want God. You know, in the right places, we want God, but in our lives, not so much. In our day-to-day, not so much. It's almost like we say this, God, we need you for certain things, and there's a lot of life that's to be lived that we don't need you for. And this is what Israel is doing. They have an image problem here. 
And if you think about it, in religion in our world today, this is kind of the whole argument between Protestants and Catholics today as we look at religion. Uh, you know, the Protestants protested to the image-driven religion of Catholicism. Because it's all, if you walk in, you see the statues and you see the icons and you see all the things. You see the prayers to the dead and you see the prayer. And when you say that out loud, it really sounds strange. But in the context of that religion, it seems to be somewhat beautiful and mystical and, you know, somewhat uh, like God's up here and holy and cathedral like. And, you know, we love the beauty of and awe of the architecture and the images. And somehow we place ourselves in a position where we feel more in tune in touch with God. But God is so far off and untouchable that the only way that I can communicate to him or with him is through some individuals who have lived somewhat lives that we would say are holy enough for us to petition God through these individuals. And so we pray to the saints and we pray to the dead and we pray to individuals and we, we, we canonize people into sainthood. And what we know in our hearts is this. How many know this? All of us have a problem, and our problem is that all of us have done wrong at some point in our lives. And how many have acknowledged this? It doesn't matter how holy or sainthood we may say people are, when you read the Bible, God is very careful to disclose to us, even with his own disciples, that they were sinful men who needed a perfect Savior. These were men who were flawed at best, you look at the 12 disciples of Jesus who are saints. And by the way, let me just say this to you as a Christian. God has given sainthood to every believer. Not because we have lived perfectly redeemable lives, but because we have trusted in a perfect Savior who has redeemed us to himself through his own righteousness. And I understand that this is maybe counter to what you were raised in, but can I just tell you something? Religion, self-made gods, doesn't save anyone. And it doesn't make any of us righteous. It may make us feel temporarily better. But the real issue in worship by images is that we have a desire to shape and revise God spiritually. In modern terms, we would say this. It's a refusal to let God be himself in our lives. We filter out, consciously or unconsciously, things about God that our hearts can't accept about Him. In some ways, this is the main sin of, of our time. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as what I like to think of God as. That is worshiping God through the work of our own hands. And in that question, ultimately and logically, we ask the question, who then is God? It's not God, it's you. You have made God and determined the, the uh, parameters of God and the standards of God such that you control God. How big is a God that you can control? You ever think about that? How, how can that God help you? A God of your control, a God of your ability, a God within the realm of your power. I don't know about you, but when I need help, I need someone that can help me do what I can't do. When, when I need assistance, I need someone to come alongside of me to help me with power I don't have, ability I don't have, giftedness I don't have. 
But people have made God to themselves and now petition and ask a God who they have made with their own hands, who they have complete control over, to do something for them when they made that God themselves. The most serious way we do this is by consciously and intellectually rejecting part of the scriptural revelation of God. We do this wherever we say this. We can no longer accept a God who does this or who forbids this. I cannot believe in a God who would put these kind of restrictions on people's lives. I cannot put, uh, believe in a God who would put restrictions on love. We live in a world that defines love as doing whatever is right in your eyes. Now let me ask you, in what way does that work in any relationship that you have? Can I truly love my wife by doing whatever I want to her? Hello? Should I act on every desire? Should I act on every response and inkling that I have? Should I act on every thought? Would that be loving? Would true freedom within the realm of our relationship be for both of us to say how we're going to have a happy relationship is by freeing one another to do whatever we want? Marriage at the marriage altar is saying this, I am committed to you, to loving you when things are good and when things are bad, to providing for you, to protecting you, and for keeping myself only unto you as long as we live. That's restrictive, isn't it? It's very restrictive. I'm saying I'm totally, ultimately committed to one person, but I am removing myself from availability to anyone else in the world. Is that restrictive? Yes, there's a negative, which is a very big positive, which helps that relationship to thrive, because within that realm of commitment, there's restrictions that come to my desires, which prove and show ultimately true love. Because true love is self-sacrificial, isn't it? Love, greater love, Jesus said, hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. In other words, if I can give up my own life to live for another, I truly then am beginning to understand what great love is. That I'm not living for myself, but for someone else. In marriage, that's what makes marriage work well. In our relationship with God, it's the only way. It's when I come into a relationship with God and say, I'm giving up my life and I'm living solely for the pleasure of my Savior. That's difficult, isn't it? Especially when we think we're going to lose. Nobody wants to go into a relationship when they love themselves thinking I'm going to miss out on some things. I mean, we live in a world that says marriage is, you see the t-shirt, game over. Right? The old ball and chain. You know, and you look at people and it's no wonder that this generation and the generation previously decided that they didn't really want much to do with marriage. Because it was so negative in their eyes, giving up what I want to live for someone else. But how many have found out that that truly is satisfying? To give up for someone else, to give yourself to someone else, 
to be for someone else is truly satisfying. Because you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for the good of someone else. If you're a parent, you understand this entirely. Do your children who are lesser, weaker, smaller, less experienced than you, some of them are getting bigger. I saw your face. Do our children serve us? Or do we serve them? Your kids know you serve them. Where's my dinner? Why isn't the internet on? Did you pay the bill? There's no gas in my car. Are my clothes clean? Some of you, that sounds like your husband. But the truth is, in our lives, we understand something, that loving our children means serving our children. In the context of the church, don't we understand that loving each other means serving each other? Do we really understand that? Or is that the put-off when it comes to church? I don't really want to be involved in a church where I have to serve other people. I want to be involved in a church where all the amenities of the church are about serving me. I like the music. I like the children's program. I like the pastor. I like, it's all about what I like. What about what God likes? Let me tell you what God likes. God likes when we look like Him, His Son, when we sacrificially lay ourselves down to serve one another. And by the way, it is the most satisfying and unifying thing that a church can realize because it puts us in a position where we say, it's not about me. And how many have realized that, that church is not about you? Church is not about what you like or dislike. Church is about God. It's about what He likes. It's about what honors Him. It's about what He loves. It's, what, it's, it's about what He wants to do in our lives. Another way that we have a problem, an image problem with self-made gods is we, we do this simply by psychologically ignoring or avoiding the aspects of God's revelation that we don't like. In other words, um, you ever pick and choose what part of the Bible you like? I hear people like, well, I like the Psalms and the Proverbs. That's all I ever read. Well, you'll have a very devotional life, but you won't have a very dedicated life. And truly, what makes the Psalms and the Proverbs so deep is ultimately a commitment, submission, and love for God. Because how can you worship somebody who you don't really live for or desire to give yourself to? A third way that we do this is by uh, the subjugation of all morality. For example, two professing Christians may be having uh, premarital sex with each other, though they're not married. And why? Because they prayed, that's good, and they felt peace about it. Irrelevant. Why is that irrelevant? Because God says that you're not supposed to do that. God says that's sin. In other words, I'm saying that I can control God. I don't like a God who says I can't do things. It's like a child who says I don't like a parent who says no. So I'll go find a parent who says yes to everything I want. A truly loving parent says yes to their children all the time. Right, kids? No. A truly loving parent understands that there are things that they need to say no to so that their children can understand what true love is. It's also correction. It's also instruction. It's also prohibitive in many different ways. It's understanding that 
there, I'm loving someone by standing in the way when they want to hurt themselves, even if they believe that hurting themselves is good for them. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Have you ever had times in your life where you abused yourself and you believe that to be good? Perhaps you used some kind of substance to abuse or you abused your mind or you abused your heart or you abused your emotions or you abused your body because you believed in some way that that was going to bring pleasure to you. People are dying today because of self-abuse, aren't they? They're dying because they're abusing themselves and they don't want anyone to say no. We don't want any restriction at all. And by subjugation of morality, making it about what I want. Why? Because what I want is God. This is what Micah's family has done. They follow God's law so far, but then they twist or add it so that they can do what they like. But here's the question. Why is that such a problem? Because it makes it impossible to truly have a personal relationship with God. It makes it impossible. In a personal relationship with a real person, the other person can contradict and upset you. How many have learned that? In a real relationship with a real person, the person in a relationship with you doesn't always parrot back what you want to hear. How many have figured that out? That happens in reality, okay? So if I want to be in a relationship with someone who only ever agrees with me, and tells me exactly what I want to hear, then I want to be in a relationship with myself. And some people are. They're called online relationships. I'm just kidding. Hopefully, if you have one, it progresses to a real-life one. But if it always stays online, it's probably not real. And some of us, that's what happens in our lives. We only want to hear... And listen... I'm going to tell you how this works. People will only go to a church where the pastor tells them what they want to hear and never tells them something that bothers them. I'm never going back there again. Did you hear what he said? He told me I wasn't allowed to do that stuff anymore. I'll go find someone that will say it's okay. What does that sound like? You want your own way in every situation. Who is God? You are. People do that even in religion. But in a relationship where the other person can contradict you and upset you, then you have to wrestle through to what? Deeper intimacy. Because how many have found this? When you are able to wrestle through your differences, you come to a place of deeper intimacy in your relationship. When you can't work through any of your problems and the other person only ever has to agree with you for you to be happy with that person, you never truly have intimacy with anyone other than you. Because you're not willing to look at the other person and say, there is a possibility that your view is what I need. There's a possibility that I need to be balanced with your truth. And all of us are thinking, even in this moment, that I wish my spouse would see things my way. I wish they would listen to what the pastor is saying. This is for you to listen to, not for you to wish your spouse would listen to. You see how selfish we are? Well, that's exactly, you're, oh, he's, I'm glad my, my husband's here today, he's hearing this. Or I wish my husband was here, or I wish my wife was here, or I wish I had a wife, some of these guys are saying, so they could hear it. You know, where, where, right, Tim? No, I'm just kidding, all right, I'm picking on him today. But we, we, we get ourselves in a position where we 
only want what we want. We simply ignore either intellectually or philosophically the parts of God we don't like. It means we don't have a God that can ever contradict our deepest desire or say no to us. We never wrestle with him. We never let him make demands on us. And we can end up worshiping a much more comfortable God, but a non-existent one because it's not God at all. It's just us. It's just our minds. Have you ever had a God in your mind that wasn't real? It was just another form of you. This is what man does. Man says, it is not right for me to worship myself so that I will make a God in my own mind that is not me but really is me. It's just another form of me and I'll worship that. And that'll give me something that I want in life. We've got to move. They have no substance. They have an image problem. They can't be trusted. It's really startling that Micah's mother shows her gratitude to the Lord by breaking his second commandment, but she's also being dishonest, right? So she breaks the commandment. She makes God's second commandment of the Ten Commandments is don't make any graven images. She goes, praise the Lord, make a graven image. That's not how you're supposed to do it. But this is what she does. But she further goes on, and she's dishonest about her gift. Having promised my silver, verse 3, she only gives 200 shekels of it to making of the idols, keeping 900 back, verse 4. Micah's mother doesn't really put God first or give him sovereignty over every part of her life. She hedges her bets. She gives some of her wealth to God, but she's holding most of it back. And let me just submit this to you this morning. It's easy to use a lot of God language. And Christians, we're really good at God language, aren't we? Claiming to have Jesus as Lord, but in reality to obey Him in only certain sectors of our lives, preserving other areas in which we live entirely as we wish to live. Or we obey Him only partially in every sector, keeping back some of our money, or ourselves, right? Or time, or emotions, or relationships as an insurance policy in case God doesn't deliver the way we like him to. We have something to fall back on. And so, self-made gods can't be trusted. Number four, self-made gods have the unsure foundation of my own desires. Self-made gods have the unsure foundation of my own desires. So what do we see in this text? Homemade religion, right? It is man-made, homemade religion. It is them making a God for themselves and controlling that God. And Israel's religion here, and this is what God is shining light on in Judges for us to see. When a group of people who claim to be God's people don't make God Lord of their life, He's not on the throne of their life, and they serve themselves and they disregard His word, they then make their own religion, and Israel's religion has become one of personal preference. Every religion that says Jesus and says God is not a religion of true faith. Are you with me? Every religion that says Jesus and says God is not a religion of true faith. They can't be, because they contradict. They can't be. When you look at other religions, in their doctrine, they contradict one another. Let me ask you a question. Does God contradict himself? No. Man loves to find contradictions, but he is the contradiction. God is not. We are the contradiction. We try to find the loopholes in the law, don't we? You ever try to do that? Anybody really good at finding loopholes in the law? I can get this done the way I want to do it, 
and still be okay. I won't get arrested because I'm doing it this way. We love to find loopholes even in God's law. And we, we seem to be somewhat proud of ourselves when we do it. But Israel's religion has become one of personal preference. Micah now makes his own son into a priest. This contradicts the Mosaic revelation that only those of the tribe of Levi were to be priests. And he wants to lift his own blood into priesthood. And after all, a shrine needs a priest, right? And later they find a Levite and they swap out his son for a Levite. They say, okay, we need a Levite. We're going to follow God this way. And he keeps making his own way through this religion and it's one of darkness. Fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith. God reveals himself in his word. We do not discover God through our own reason or our own experience. Did you get that? That's an important point for us today. Fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith. In other words, when you find people who do not have the word of God, you find them worshiping in ways that God does not intend for them to worship. Because you don't experience the true nature of who God is until you understand his word. That's why God says, how can people hear without a preacher of the word of God? That's an important point. The accent is not on the preacher, but someone does need to proclaim what the word says, right? There needs to be someone who's speaking, but what they're speaking needs not to be their own preference What they're speaking needs to be the actual word of God. And so God gives entire books in the New Testament to those who speak the word of God. And he says this simply, preach the word. Instant, in season and out of season. Why? Because what's important is that people hear the word of God, not my word. What's important is people don't hear my opinion. I have opinions. Do you have opinions? I read the Bible like you do and I go, oh man, I don't like that. That is really going to crimp my style. That is really going to have to alter the way I live my life. How many do that? When you see the Bible, it says you can't do this anymore. How many go this? The Bible says I can't lie, but what about little white ones? I mean, can I just like, you know, not tell the whole truth? Can I just not disclose everything? I mean, we try to find loopholes to God's law because we want a God of our own preference, and this is what Israel had done. Fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith, and the faith that's been revealed to us is in the Word of God. Church, that's why you need to study the Word of God. You are not going to study the Word of God in a 45-minute session on Sunday morning. This is part of it. Hopefully what this does is, is you go, ah, I didn't see that when I read Judges chapter 17. Maybe I need to get a little bit deeper. Maybe I need to go a little bit further than just glazing over and have a complete understanding. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, have an understanding of the entire narrative of the story before you cast judgment on one portion of the scripture. Isn't it important to know the whole story? Before you judge it? You know, some people, they get, they, they read, right, where am I going to start reading? All right, in the beginning, Genesis, right? It says in the beginning. Like any other book, I should start there. How many have found this out? That without Jesus, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Without Jesus, as a matter of fact, most of it makes zero sense. 
Without Jesus, we have a narrative of a group of people who are really bad, doing awful things to each other, to one another, abuse, neglect, murder, I mean, all kinds of terrible, terrible things in the narrative. And what is it ultimately crying out to us for? We need someone to save us from ourselves. And none of us is good enough. And no matter how we try, no matter the best of the best, of the greatest of the greatest, none of us can get it done apart from the Savior who God is going to send. In the Jewish religion, it was the Messiah, the Christ. And that was the declaration that Peter made when Jesus said this to him. He said, who are people saying that I am? Some people say you're a great teacher. Listen, the same things are said about Jesus today. Some religions say Jesus is a good teacher, he's a good prophet, some say he's a good man. But how many have figured this out? Good people don't walk around saying, I'm God. You would not think I was a good person if I was walking around and I came to your house and said, hey, I'm God. You would not think I'm a good person, you would think I'm a crazy person and you would be right. Because people that say they're God are crazy people. Are you with me? So Jesus walking around nonchalantly saying, I'm God, guys, I'm God, I'm God, doesn't make him a good person. It makes him either a crazy person or actually someone who was telling the truth. And for you, you need to decide which one he was. Because he can't be just a good teacher and just a good person because he said he was God. Either he was God or he wasn't. Which one do you believe about Jesus? And that is fundamentally the reason why someone knows God or doesn't know God. It's what they do with Jesus Christ. And what have you done with Jesus? Is he God in the flesh, sent to die and pay for your sins? Or is he just another good person that lived in life and said good things? Read the Gospels. You will either say Jesus was a nutcase or Jesus was God in the flesh. You can't come away with a halfway position on Jesus. And how, what's the proof of the pudding in that? What did they do with Jesus, the religious people? They murdered him. Why? Because he said he was God. That's exactly why they killed him. They said, it's blasphemy. They tried to pick up stones to stone him several times when Jesus said he was God. And you know what? Ultimately, they nailed him to a cross. And why did they do it? They were even mad when Pilate put above his head, King of the Jews. Why? Because they said, we will not have this king to rule over us. This is not our Messiah. This is not our king. We reject him as the Messiah. And he was despised. Isaiah, the prophet, says, rejected of his own. He came unto his own, John, right? He tells us he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own people rejected him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's what happens when you believe on Jesus. You become like God, and God stops being like you. Fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a real, revealed faith. This religion on Israel's terms, according to each person's personal preference, is a religion that is not about God and His truth, but about me and my ideas and my preferences. It's a religion which seeks to control and to tame God, to remake Him into an image we're comfortable with. It's an easing it's an easy or exciting religion, but it is not a religion which will bring blessing or rescue. Lastly, and we're done. Self-made gods are only temporary. Self-made gods are only temporary. Let me, would you think about this, this with me? The purpose 
of Micah's religious efforts was to get access to God so that he could get God to do what he wanted him to do. But the goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so he can get you to do what he wants you to do. It's just the reverse. The purpose of religion is saying, I want a God who I can gain access to so I can get him to do what I need him to do. God, heal me. God, bless me. God, give me. God, do what I want. I want God to do for me. But true faith is about you saying, God, take me. Change me. Make me like you because you're the standard, not me. Now, which God do you serve? It's an important question. The tragedy of man-made religion is that it always reduces God to be someone to be controlled rather than seeing God as the one who is in control and who is worthy of real, whole life worship. He asks this question. At the end in chapter 18, the Danite soldiers move on toward the land they decided to settle in. Micah and his neighbors catch up to them, ready to fight. Verse 22 and 23 of chapter 18, why? Because the Danites have taken everything Micah has. Verse 24, what does he say? You took the gods I made, you took my priest, you went away, what else do I have? Let me ask you this. What could be taken away from you today that would cause you to lose your purpose and identity? What could be taken away from you today that could cause you to lose your purpose and identity? Would it be your job? Would it be your investments? Would it be your family? We have a great example of this in the life of Job, don't we? Job loses what? Everything. Everything. Things that we find status in. He loses his children, his house, his, he's a rich man, he loses it all. And the very best he has is a group of three friends who come and try to tell him why he lost everything. And they're all wrong. They're saying, Job, you did this, Job, you did that, surely you must have sinned against God, and surely this might have happened, that might have happened. But the Bible says of Job that Job, in all of these things, never charged God wrongfully, kept and retained his faith in God, and said this ultimately, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, Job says, you can't take anything away from me that is of value. But what does Micah say? What do I have left? I got nothing left. Listen, if things can be taken from you, who's your, and you lose everything, who's your God? Listen, Christian, here's the, here's the truth. What can people do to us? If we truly have faith in one true God and possess today eternal life through Jesus Christ and will never die, what can be taken away from us? Stuff, which is at the grave, where's it going to go? Your family's just going to argue over it. Listen, do your family a favor. Give them nothing to argue over when you die. Write them a little note and say, go out and earn it yourself. <laughs> I know we laugh, but some people think that behind the hurts, they're going to have a U-Haul trailer. And they're going to just take everything with them. 
You take nothing with you. Nothing. At the end of your life, what you have is God and you. And if you don't have God, you have nothing. And that's where Micah was. He had nothing because he didn't have God. But to the one that has God, he loses nothing when he loses things because he has everything in God. All of us truly today as we close should say this, Jesus, you are everything to me. And if I lose everything, I've lost nothing. The hymn writer said it this way, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Can you say that today? You say, if, if your religion is a God plus religion, I want God, but I also want my career, I also want my money, I also want this, I also want that. Listen, would the people who love to point to God in the end zone still bless God if they weren't in the end zone? Are you with me? Would the people behind podiums that say, I'd just like to thank God, still thank God if they weren't behind the podium? Is our identity in what God gives us or is our identity truly in God? And for me today, the message is this. If my identity is in my ministry, then I have no true identity because my ministry can be gone tomorrow. My identity needs to be in Jesus because Jesus can't be taken away from any of us and nobody can take us away from Jesus. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.